0: this is chapter 67 of roughing it this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer visit librivox.org roughing it by mark twain chapter 67 i still quote from my journal i found the national legislature to consist of half a dozen white men and some 30 or 40 natives it was a dark assemblage The nobles and ministers—about a dozen of them altogether—occupied the extreme left of the hall, with David Kalakaua, the king's chamberlain, and Prince William at the head. The president of the assembly, His Royal Highness M. Kekuanawa—Kekuanawa is not of the blood-royal. He derives his princely rank from his wife, who was a daughter of Kamehameha the Great— Under other monarchies, the male line takes precedence of the female in tracing genealogies, but here the opposite is the case—the female line takes precedence. The reason for this is exceedingly sensible, and I recommend it to the aristocracy of Europe. They say it is easy to know who a man's mother was, um, but—etc., etc. And uh, the vice-president, the latter a white man, sat in the pulpit— if i may so term it the president is the king's father he is an erect strongly built massive featured white-haired tawny old gentleman of eighty years of age or thereabouts he was simply but well dressed in a blue cloth coat and white vest and white pantaloons without spot dust or blemish upon them he bears himself with a calm stately dignity and as a man of noble presence he was a young man and a distinguished warrior under that terrific fighter kamehameha i more than half a century ago a knowledge of his career suggested some such thought as this this man naked as the day he was born and war club and spear in hand has charged at the head of a horde of savages against other hordes of savages more than a generation and a half ago and revelled in slaughter and carnage has worshipped wooden images on his devout knees has seen hundreds of his race offered up in heathen temples as sacrifices to wooden idols at a time when no missionary's foot had ever pressed this soil and he had never heard of the white man's god has believed his enemy could secretly pray him to death has seen the day in his childhood when it was a crime punishable by death for a man to eat with his wife or for a plebeian to let his shadow fall upon the king and now look at him an educated christian neatly and handsomely dressed a high-minded elegant gentleman a traveller in some degree and one who has been the honoured guest of royalty in europe a man practised in holding the reins of an enlightened government and well versed in the politics of his country and in general practical information look at him sitting there presiding over the deliberations of a legislative body among whom are white men a grave dignified statesmanlike personage and as seemingly natural and fitted to the place as if he had been born in it and had never been out of it in his lifetime HOW THE EXPERIENCES OF THIS OLD MAN'S EVENTFUL LIFE SHAME THE CHEAP INVENTIONS OF ROMANCE. THE CHRISTIANIZING OF THE NATIVES HAS HARDLY EVEN WEAKENED SOME OF THEIR BARBARIAN SUPERSTITIONS, MUCH LESS DESTROYED THEM. I HAVE JUST REFERRED TO ONE OF THESE. IT IS STILL A POPULAR BELIEF THAT IF YOUR ENEMY CAN GET HOLD OF ANY ARTICLE BELONGING TO YOU, HE CAN GET DOWN ON HIS KNEES OVER IT AND PRAY YOU TO DEATH. THEREFORE, many a native gives up and dies merely because he imagines that some enemy is putting him through a course of damaging prayer this praying an individual to death seems absurd enough at a first glance but then when we call to mind some of the pulpit efforts of certain of our own ministers the thing looks plausible in former times among the islanders not only a plurality of wives was customary but a plurality of husbands likewise. Some native women of noble rank had as many as six husbands. A woman thus supplied did not reside with all her husbands at once, but lived several months with each in turn. An understood sign hung at her door during these months. When the sign was taken down, it meant, Next. In those days woman was rigidly taught to know her place. Her place was to do all the work take all the cuffs, provide all the food, and content herself with what was left after her lord had finished his dinner. She was not only forbidden by ancient law and under penalty of death to eat with her husband or enter a canoe, but was debarred under the same penalty from eating bananas, pineapples, oranges, and other choice fruits at any time or in any place. She had to confine herself pretty strictly to poi and hard work." these poor ignorant heathen seemed to have had a sort of groping idea of what came of woman eating fruit in the garden of eden and they did not choose to take any more chances but the missionaries broke up this satisfactory arrangement of things they liberated woman and made her the equal of man the natives had a romantic fashion of burying some of their children alive when the family became larger than necessary the missionaries interfered in this matter too and stopped it To this day the natives are able to lie down and die whenever they want to, whether there is anything the matter with them or not. If a kanaka takes a notion to die, that is the end of him. Nobody can persuade him to hold on. All the doctors in the world could not save him. A luxury which they enjoy more than anything else is a large funeral. If a person wants to get rid of a troublesome native, it is only necessary to promise him a fine funeral and name the hour, and he will be on hand to the minute, at least his remains will. All the natives are Christians now, but many of them still desert to the great shark-god for temporary succor in time of trouble." an eruption of the great volcano of kilauea or an earthquake always brings a deal of latent loyalty to the great shark god to the surface it is common report that the king educated cultivated and refined christian gentleman as he undoubtedly is still turns to the idols of his fathers for help when disaster threatens a planter caught a shark and one of his christianized natives testified his emancipation from the thrall of ancient superstition by assisting to dissect the shark after a fashion forbidden by his abandoned creed. but remorse shortly began to torture him he grew moody and sought solitude brooded over his sin refused food and finally said he must die and ought to die for he had sinned against the great shark god and could never know peace any more he was proof against persuasion and ridicule and in the course of a day or two took to his bed and died although he showed no symptom of disease his young daughter followed his lead and suffered a like fate within the week superstition is ingrained in the native blood and bone and it is only natural that it should crop out in time of distress Wherever one goes in the islands, he will find small piles of stones by the wayside, covered with leafy offerings, placed there by the natives to appease evil spirits or honor local deities belonging to the mythology of former days. In the rural districts of any of the islands, the traveler hourly comes upon parties of dusky maidens bathing in the streams or in the sea without any clothing on, and exhibiting no very intemperate zeal in the matter of hiding their nakedness when the missionaries first took up their residence in honolulu the native women would pay their families frequent friendly visits day by day not even clothed with a blush it was found a hard matter to convince them that this was rather indelicate finally the missionaries provided them with long loose calico robes and that ended the difficulty for the women would troop through the town stark naked with their robes folded under their arms, march to the missionary houses, and then proceed to dress. The natives soon manifested a strong proclivity for clothing, but it was shortly apparent that they only wanted it for grandeur. The missionaries imported a quantity of hats, bonnets, and other male and female wearing apparel, instituted a general distribution— and begged the people not to come to church naked next sunday as usual and they did not but the national spirit of unselfishness led them to divide up with neighbours who were not at the distribution and next sabbath the poor preachers could hardly keep countenance before their vast congregations in the midst of the reading of a hymn a brown stately dame would sweep up the aisle with a world of airs with nothing in the world on but a stovepipe hat and a pair of cheap gloves Another dame would follow, tricked out in a man's shirt, and nothing else. Another one would enter with a flourish, with simply the sleeves of a bright calico dress tied around her waist, and the rest of the garment dragging behind like a peacock's tail off-duty. A stately buck, Kanaka, would stalk in with a woman's bonnet on—wrong side before. Only this, and nothing more after him would stride his fellow with the legs of a pair of pantaloons tied around his neck the rest of his person untrammelled in his rear would come another gentleman simply gotten up in a fiery necktie and a striped vest the poor creatures were beaming with complacency and wholly unconscious of any absurdity in their appearance they gazed at each other with happy admiration and it was plain to see that the young girls were taking note of what each other had on as naturally as if they had always lived in a land of bibles and knew what churches were made for here was the evidence of a dawning civilization the spectacle which the congregation presented was so extraordinary and withal so moving that the missionaries found it difficult to keep to the text and go on with the services and by and by when the simple children of the sun began a general swapping of garments in open meeting and produce some irresistibly grotesque effects in the course of redressing, there was nothing for it but to cut the thing short with a benediction, and dismiss the fantastic assemblage. In our country children play keep house, and in the same high-sounding but miniature way the grown folk here, with the poor little material of slender territory and meagre population, play empire. There is his royal majesty the king with a new york detective's income of thirty or thirty-five thousand dollars a year from the royal civil list and the royal domain he lives in a two-story frame palace and there is the royal family the customary hive of royal brothers sisters cousins and other noble drones and vagrants usual to monarchy all with a spoon in the national pap dish and all bearing such titles as his or her royal highness, the prince or princess so-and-so. Few of them can carry their royal splendours far enough to ride in carriages, however. They sport the economical kanaka horse, or hoof it with the plebeians. Then there is His Excellency the royal chamberlain, a sinecure, for His Majesty dresses himself with his own hands, except when he is ruralizing at Waikiki, and then he requires no dressing. Next, we have His Excellency, the Commander in Chief of the Household Troops, whose forces consist of about the number of soldiers usually placed under a corporal in other lands. Next comes the Royal Steward and the Grand Equerry in Waiting, high dignitaries with modest salaries and little to do. Then we have His Excellency, the First Gentleman of the Bedchamber, an office as easy as it is magnificent. Next, we come to His Excellency, the Prime Minister a renegade American from New Hampshire, all jaw, vanity, bombast, and ignorance, a lawyer of shyster caliber, a fraud by nature, a humble worshipper of the scepter above him, a reptile never tired of sneering at the land of his birth, or glorifying the ten-acre kingdom that has adopted him, salary, four thousand dollars a year, vast consequence, and no perquisites then we have his excellency the imperial minister of finance who handles a million dollars of public money a year sends in his annual budget with great ceremony talks prodigiously of finance suggests imposing schemes for paying off the national debt of one hundred and fifty thousand dollars and does it all for four thousand dollars a year and unimaginable glory next we have his excellency the minister of war who holds sway over the royal armies they consist of two hundred and thirty uniformed kanakas mostly brigadier generals and if the country ever gets into trouble with a foreign power we shall probably hear from them i knew an american whose copper-plate visiting card bore this impressive legend lieutenant-colonel in the royal infantry to say that he was proud of this distinction is stating it but tamely the minister of war has also in his charge some venerable swivels on punchbowl hill wherewith royal salutes are fired when foreign vessels of war enter the port. Next comes His Excellency, the Minister of the Navy, a nabob who rules the royal fleet, a steam-tug, and a sixty-ton schooner. And next comes His Grace, the Lord Bishop of Honolulu, the chief dignitary of the established Church. For when the American Presbyterian missionaries had completed the reduction of the nation to a compact condition of Christianity, native royalty stepped in and erected the grand dignity of an established episcopal church over it and imported a cheap ready-made bishop from england to take charge the chagrin of the missionaries has never been comprehensively expressed to this day profanity not being admissible next comes his excellency the minister of public instruction next their excellencies the governors of oahu hawaii etc and after them a string of high sheriffs and other small fry, too numerous for computation. Then there are their excellencies, the envoy extraordinary, and the minister plenipotentiary of his imperial majesty the Emperor of the French, her British majesty's minister, the minister-resident of the United States, and some six or eight representatives of other foreign nations, all with sounding titles, imposing dignity, and prodigious, but economical state. Imagine all this grandeur in a playhouse kingdom whose population falls absolutely short of 60,000 souls. The people are so accustomed to nine jointed titles and colossal magnates that a foreign prince makes very little more stir in Honolulu than a Western congressman does in New York. And let it be borne in mind that there is a strictly defined court costume of so stunning a nature that it would make the clown in a circus look tame and commonplace, by comparison. And each Hawaiian official dignitary has a gorgeous, vari-colored, gold-laced uniform peculiar to his office. No two of them are alike, and it is hard to tell which one is the loudest. The king had a drawing-room at stated intervals, like other monarchs, and when these varied uniforms congregate there, weak-eyed people have to contemplate the spectacle through smoked glass is there not a gratifying contrast between this latter-day exhibition and the one the ancestors of some of these magnates afforded the missionaries the sunday after the old-time distribution of clothing behold what religion and civilization have wrought End of chapter sixty seven